0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Art, and my first guest for the morning has joined us in the studio once a month. Bernard Callio comes in to enthuse <laughs> about all things related to comic books, graphic novels, sequential visual narrative, and uh, and drawings with pictures and words attached to
1: them. them 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 that's that's the new name because all those yeah there's just too many there's too many uh, uh, uh categories now yes we're, just, we're going to call it them
0: oh, like a horror film I, I, I actually rewatched that particular horror film yes. them, not so long ago and there's some moments of genuine kind of like frisson of, of of fear even though you go they're giant ants that are puppets and yeah. you can essentially almost see the people moving yeah. them on the big sound stage. But the way it's shot and made, it's yeah. still very, very effective. Yeah, yeah, so, fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, comic Them. <laughs> Let's move off. Well, sci nice, horror. There's a nice segue there because, of course, the 50s was the time that the comic book panic began. I, uh, indeed. Extending into the, the the 60s in which comic books were motting, motting, uh, rotting <laughs> the moral fibre <laughs> of uh, the young people of America. I'm really interested in, in what they were doing when they were motting though. <laughs> that sounds that sounds darkly Motting the rural
1: flavour. <laughs> my 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 rurals motted uh, by years in comics, and they still are, and they still are. Uh, Richard, hello. Uh, uh, yes, here we are with drawn out our um, investigation, research findings, uh, soundings from the uh, from the world of comic books. And actually, soundings is a, is a is a apposite word this week because I've got two uh, books to talk about, oh. and perhaps a new comic. Comic book podcast to talk about? Yes, indeed, a new comic mm. book podcast. <laughs> yes, we'll save that for the end. Oh, uh, so, we sorry, have, so we have, so we have a nice little uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, bookends, bookends, uh, comic bookends, indeed. So uh, first of all, I'd like to tell you all that Wayne Shorter, the great saxophonist uh, from the from many Miles Davis albums, uh, he is eighty five years old. Uh, in his latest. Triple album called Emanon, E M A N O uh, N, from Blue Note. Uh, it has a graphic novel uh, enclosed in the in the release. I've not seen this. You've seen some images online. It's a sci-fi painted, uh, forty-eight page graphic novel written by Shorter and, and uh, a, a screenwriter called Monica Sly, and the artwork is by a guy called Randy Dub. Ba, do, bark, eh? do bake, do bake, do bake, do bake, do bake. I bake. Uh, Randy, you bake. Uh, so that is, um, and Emanon is. Of course, no name backwards. Uh, So, and it's that that the name itself, the title, is from a a Dizzy Gillespie track. So uh, that's so uh, you know when when I get it, (laughs) I'll come in and talk enthuse about it again. And then you could we could play a track from the album accompanying the comic book. And then we could just go ding every time the people needed to turn the page. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The other person who was in town recently, Wayne wasn't in town, but a chap called Akala from uh, England, from uh, London, uh, who's a um, hip-hop artist, uh, poet uh, and singer, also runs uh, an organisation called Hip-Hop Shakespeare uh, in England, but was here really to talk about his his book uh, Natives, race and class in the ruins of empire so that's a polemic work Uh, but while he was here uh, he did a talk at the Athenaeum and a gig at Laundry Um, but I did note that he actually also has a comic book as well a comic book EP a couple of years old now called uh, Visions uh, which he describes as a semi-autobiographical magic realist story written entirely in verse Comics and comics and poetry. I'm I'm, I'm up for that. Uh, and it and it uh, traces the uh, history of the art of rapping from West Africa's griot tradition through jazz, blues, and reggae's up to the present uh, reggae up to the present day. Cool. So yeah, yeah. So they're both things that have crossed my transom recently, and I went, wow. I've Got to tell people about that. And when I um, grab them, then we can talk about them more fully. Excellent. Uh, something that happened a month ago uh, up in Sydney was the Ledger Awards. Now, the Ledger Awards are the awards for excellence in Australian comic books. Not named after Heath Ledger. Not named after a uh, Heath Ledger. After named after another Ledger, who uh, Australian chap who was a um, a cartoonist, an adventurer, uh, and adventurer, uh, and you know he's a a shooter and a diver and a juggler and, a, you know, all those sorts of things. But uh, uh, he uh, died too early when he went uh, over to America, died in a, in a um, car crash over there, Peter Ledger. And so these these uh, awards are named in his, uh, his honour. And they are a, an excellent uh, aggregator, these awards, because um, I don't know if you've noticed, Richard, but Australia is quite big. In the comic book world? Well... Or just,
0: just big ge- geographically, geographically, big. Yeah,
1: it is. So it, uh, yes, thank you for confirming that. Uh, maybe not, you know, in the context of the galaxy, but but certainly in the world. And so it means that you know people in I don't know Broken Hill are doing comics. Um, it's very kind of hard to hear about them uh, if you're in if you're in Perth. Uh, but the, the ledgers uh, every year get everyone who's been making comics or as many as they can to send in their works which are judged by a panel uh, and then there are gold silver uh, platinum uh, sorry gold silver and bronze ledgers awarded but also very interestingly uh, uh, ledgers of honor so people are honored uh, for their for their past contributions to the Australian comics. Uh, Pantheon, I suppose. And this year we had um, uh, Stanley and Reginald Pitt, uh, P I double T, who made exquisite work uh, during the fifties and sixties, forties, fifties, sixties. Uh, very much. Uh, f- uh, Following in the in the in the style, I suppose, in the, in the tradition of uh, Flash Gordon, which was coming from um, from from America, but they had a character called Silver Star. Uh, so these brothers, and they yeah, they did a lot of work, particularly when the Australian comics industry, we were talking about the fifties a minute ago, and um, Australian comic industry had a little. A little I, 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 a massive downturn. A massive yeah a gr- massive swell in the 50s because um
0: American imports were restricted that's what sorry I said yeah. downturn kind yeah. of uh, I'm thinking post that because there was as you say that boom in the 50s when suddenly um couldn't get American yeah. content so every all the local yeah. creators Woo. were making stuff it's post-war that then Precisely. suddenly the local comic book scene just dies on yes not completely died no, but yeah, very
1: driven into dwindled um, yes into the into the wombat boroughs where we've been um, so of <laughs> living ever since uh, <laughs> to, to take a you know to get a bit sci-fi horror about the whole thing um but uh, of course that also coincided with the early 60s and, and the rise of marvel which was a new way of doing superhero comics anyway that's a totally different story yeah. but uh so the ledgers of honor uh, uh, honored these uh, chaps but the award uh, awards ceremony this year was excellent it was up at the uh mitchell library in the state library of new south wales
0: i heard they had an excellent
1: mc <laughs> <laughs> he's just the guy in the white white suit um yes it was, it was it's my great pleasure to mc these these awards um and
0: uh, uh, the uh, thing that interests me about the ledger awards i guess is that not only do they is it a national a truly national award for Comic book artists and creators, but every year they publish uh, a book which uh, is an anthology, yes. effectively, of the work that is being celebrated. Both the historical work that's yes. being celebrated and the contemporary work.
1: Yes, well, I mean, at least at, at, at least as important, I think, as the uh, the honouring of, of the people is this. It, it, the ledgers really uh, uh, achieve this incredible um, goal of. of of giving a sense of art tradition, you know, that, like the Green Room Awards do, you know, just there's um, basically they they uh, they bring a sense of memory uh, 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 to to the practice. You know, people are working, as all artists are, working all the
0: time, spitting out stuff, getting onto the next project, and uh, a, a practice in an art form which is relatively ephemeral, given precisely uh, that. Indie comics and in the past, uh, even professional comics, may have been printed on really, really cheap, flimsy newsprint, often thrown out after I don't know if you moved out of home at, at 20, sure.
1: twenty something, your mum kind of went put them out in the hard rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, um, that, precisely so. So uh, what you know, the, yeah, I think the the awards do this amazing aggregating uh, and, and celebrating and memorialising, and so yeah, so it was. But this this year in particular, just to um, and you can, if you put in Ledger's Facebook, if that's your way of looking at things, you can you can see some footage of the of the awards. And one of the great breakthroughs I think in the awards ceremony this year is that they had a a a, a, a form called um, which has been called Read to Me, whereby a, an artist will get up and and live speak. Their comic with the images projected panel by panel on the uh, screens above them, which was a, a great addition to the. Um awards process because you really got this, uh, very visceral sense of the person, the artist, uh, and of course of their work because you would see the, the, those panels projected large, uh, up on, up on the wall behind them. So, uh, many, so, uh, Thomas Campy, uh, was the winner of the gold, uh, uh, award this year for his, the, the book that he illustrated, um, <clears throat> Pardon me, about the Siegel and Schuster, the, the guys who created Superman. Um, and so that was the gold. But some of the uh, other... One particular comic that I'd really like to um, uh, uh, recommend uh, was a one called uh, A Week in Warragella. Uh, by Pi, P-I, and Taloka Berry. And so if you look up A Week in Warragilla, W-A-R-R-I-G-I-L-L-A, sorry, uh, um, it, it, it is a road trip with... These girlfriends Hazel and Willie, and they set out on the on the great Aussie road trip, but they wind up trapped in the cursed region of winding mountain roads, and basically it turns into this sort of Cthulhu horror uh, road trip. It uh, sounds uh, like part cars that ate Paris. Oh, wow. it's so beautiful. It is so beautiful, and the, and the, this couple uh, are, are just great characters. Uh, so that's yeah. Anyway, there's a lot to love uh, in uh, in the in in a weekend. In uh, and the other person's work, who I'd like to talk about, was one of the bronze ledger winners, uh, was Bailey Sharp and her work My Big Life, uh, which uh, is published by uh, Glom Press. And Glom Press are a, a local uh, Melbourne, local uh, uh, a Rizzo print uh, publisher so rizzo is a particular printing process really lovely colors um, and, and Bailey Bailey sharps uh, work is uh, beautiful and um, mind-bending so yeah uh, the the yeah ledgers this year were were great and um, I'm really keen to somehow find a a, a place for them in a, like the NLA or somewhere like that somewhere it's like the collections of each year can be sort of really held in a in a, an Australian institution. institutions. Institution, yeah, yeah, they yeah. should be
0: because they're of national
1: significance. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, and the last book I want to just just mention before I go is another glom press book, and just the title and the cover alone. oh wow, were'
0: enough to get me. Yeah, the title is The Claw, The Terrible, Beautiful Claw. <laughs> it, it, it just begs to be read Doesn't in that it? kind of uh, oh, horror movie it, voiceover toys. trailer.
1: It's is, so it, good. So this is another Glom Press book, a larger, um, this is sort of a 4 format book uh, by Mark Pearson, one of the um, uh, uh, geniuses behind uh, Glom Press. and um, Michael Hawkins and and, and Mark Pearson are the the sort of runners of that press and uh, this is quite a long book uh, uh, not paginated but it must be 50 or 60 pages and it is (laughs) it is what is Beautiful, I suppose, particularly about the uh, cover and the back cover really reminded me of the work of William Steig, or Steig, I suppose, who's an illustrator and cartoonist, now dead, a New Yorker. Uh, He did Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. He did did Shrek, actually, the original Shrek, Um, but uh, beautiful, beautiful, wavering sort of line that he has about his cartooning. Anyway, uh, Mark Pearson's work uh, reminds, and he was one of the Read to me, people up at the ledges as well. But the claw (laughs) is like a horror film, uh, directed by Wes Anderson, but not as sickly sweet as a Wes Anderson. Um, There's just there's there's uh, um, abandoned mothers up in attics. There's uh, donkeys. There there is a claw. There's a terrible, beautiful claw. claw. Uh, And it is uh, printed, uh, as uh, Richard's sort of um, turning the pages right now, it's printed in that lovely uh, Rizzo print
0: sort of delicate uh, There's a softness to the the printing style. Very much. Very uh, much. Which suits this slightly... Otherworldly yeah. kind of story yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Like it literally opens with somebody visiting uh, a friend at their mother's house, and the house is old and crumbling, and mm. almost like an estate rather than a house yeah. in the suburbs. At which point, elderly mother can be glimpsed at the window, almost like a ghost. Yes, uh, and that just sets the tone yeah. beautifully. Yeah, it's a, it's a ripper, uh, and it's printed on this soft mauve paper mm. with blue ink, and so totally, it's just, it's it. There's something faintly melancholy but beautiful about it that literally just is conveyed immediately by the pages without even With knowing look, what the story yeah. is. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it's a ripper. So that's oh. the claw.
1: Excellent. excelente, Bernard, thank you for coming in. Uh, total pleasure. Have a good show.
0: I hope we do. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Triple R brand new play that opened last night at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre. As always, with any interview about La Mama, just a very quick disclaimer, I am the chair of the Volunteer Committee of Management. Uh, I do not benefit financially from talking about La Mama Productions on Triple R. So, with that out of the way, uh, it's uh, now my very great pleasure to welcome uh, Sabawi to the Triple R Studios, and I'm trying to do justice to the pronunciation of your name, and I apologise if I don't get the... It's a. No. That's
2: fine. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Very great pleasure. So uh, you are a a playwright, you are a poet, you're also an activist, uh, and your new play Them is giving, I I guess, empathising for people who may not Consider why people flee their homeland or their city—an uh, opportunity to feel the emotions behind those decisions.
2: Absolutely, I think um, in in the privileged, wonderful uh, world that we live in, uh, we sometimes uh, don't understand um, that people do not choose to be refugees, no one wants to be a refugee, no one wants to be stateless. Um, And so before people uh, abandon um, everything they've known their entire life and take uh, a risk um, by going on a boat to a place that may or may not want them to be there, um, for that risk to take place, for that to happen, extraordinary things. Um, must be causing this and when we talk about refugees we talk about them in this country like they're an inconvenience or like they are um, people who are coming after our resources or um, they are people uh, who are making a choice to be here um, and they should really be deported back to where they come from and it's it's beyond cruel the way that the discourse happens around refugees and asylum seekers here Uh, and so I think for me, it was—it was. It was um, I mean, it's just a play at the end of the day. But this is what I know how to do. I know how to write, and it was the least I could do to try to um, raise awareness around refugees and asylum seekers and impossible choices and humanize the, um, the people that we demonize and. and do so almost on a daily basis in our media
0: now as i said them is the, your new play which opened just last night i had the very great pleasure of seeing uh one of your earlier plays tales of a city by the sea uh not once but twice uh because oh. uh, uh, i enjoyed it so much when it got a remount uh, a year or two later i really wanted to see it again um there's clearly uh, writing uh, plays like this. Is also uh, any play is an expression of the playwright's kind of own experience, ideas, and passions. But um, given that you're Palestinian, there's clearly uh, a, a really deep and powerful connection to the place you're writing about mm-hmm. in these plays, as well as the stories that you're presenting.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, like we we write about things we know about and we experience, and you cannot um, put a human face on something that that, that you're totally um, uh, detached from. I was born in Gaza. Um, we were uh, made refugees in the aftermath of the nineteen sixty seven war, um, and you know this is one thing that my father said to me yesterday. He came to the opening last night, and. Uh, at the end, I was really nervous about his reaction, as I always am, because he's a poet and a writer, and, and he's my father. And, um, and he was he was crying, and he said, um, "May God forgive you for making me relive those moments of having to of having to leave Gaza." in 1967. Um, and this was something that I got from other people who were there. There was a woman who told me that it made her finally appreciate what her parents must have gone through when they were forced to leave Vietnam. Um, and another young man told me, you know, I, I still cry when I remember how I left Syria. Uh, so this is a human experience that's not just Palestinian. But that's the, that's the thing that we forget. We forget that we all experience the same thing, that, that dispossession um, is wrong um, and, and feels terrible no matter what your color is or what religion you have or, or um, what ethnicity you come from. And so this play, I, I um, on purpose, I made it in an unnamed um, war zone because I, I wanted every refugee um, everybody coming to see it to be able to apply the experience to every refugee that they meet.
0: Which uh, you've just completely destroyed what was going to be my next question. <laughs> uh, because often um, uh, what you were saying about the, that common and shared experience... Uh, the more specific we make a story, sometimes mm-hmm. the more universal it becomes. Yes. But you've flipped that, and so I can't ask the question I was <sighs> going to ask, which is about specificity, but so instead you're you're telling a story which, you, as you've just said, you very deliberately have said it in a no place, which is all places. Yeah,
2: yeah. and But, you know, there is... Uh, there are specifics in it so you're not you weren't too far off there are specifics but the specifics speak to the human experience not the geographical place so you know the husband and the wife in the play um what they experience any husband and wife watching are going to relate they're going to say oh this is us um you know he's chasing her around wanting to get it on with her and um you know he's flirting with her uh but then suddenly they, they the conversation flips to, uh, we need to sleep in different parts of the apartment so one of us survives if a bomb falls. Uh, and so it's interjecting these horrible realities into the everyday um, life that, that that we all have and, and the commonalities within the everyday that we share.
0: Now, the play's been in development for several years. How many drafts have you gone through at this stage? Can you remember?
2: Uh, I think probably around... A dozen. But um the first draft was written all in one day. And um, since then, there's been added there's been things added, but not nothing um, that was greatly altered from the 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 storyline itself. Uh, but you know, some characters grew more and developed more dimensions and and uh, they became more interesting with every uh, rewriting. That I've done.
0: Is it usual for you to for an entire play to pour out like that in one sitting in one day?
2: Yes I'm terrible at planning essays I'm terrible at planning things I um I yeah things come out in a in an outpouring and then I go back and I polish and I and I fix but I I don't I don't know how to do it any other way.
0: It's one of the things that fascinates me about the the artistic process and the creative process, that some people will meticulously plan, map out all the different scenes that they want in their play with, I don't know, cards on the wall or something before they sit down to write. Others, like yourself, it's a much more organic process. And then, as you say, you you edit and fine-tune and redraft and rewrite and, Mm. and... kind of uh, flesh out the details of characters' lives. Tell us about the characters in them.
2: Uh, So this it's a a couple at the centre of of the the story. They are a young couple. It's five young characters. They're all in their 20s. The couple central to the story are Omar and Leila, and they have a baby. And uh, they have... Um, Omar has two friends who, one of them is a resistance fighter who doesn't know which resistance he's fighting for anymore because things get all mixed up uh, and gray. Um, and his other friend is constantly trying to find people um, online that he can hook up with, that he, that he could fall in love with, and then... When he goes on the boat to Europe, he can marry somebody. and then, you know, that's his ticket out. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, and and the resistance fighter. And then there is the story of Omar's sister, which is really, Uh, That's where my heart uh, is uh, for the most part because she is somebody who has been sexually harassed and uh, raped Um, and and so it's very hardened from being in a war zone and it's through her that we get to have a real clear window on the impact of war on women. And uh, how women are used as weapons of war um, in these conflict areas, and and I tackle issues um, beyond the sexual violence, um, um, marrying young girls. Uh, the, the the thing that happens in a lot of the war zones is, uh, the minute things become when things become really really bad, is when. Um, so-called good men who have money, um, go and find themselves a bride who is young and beautiful and just is desperate to get out. So there's a whole market for for this and it's kind of uh, part of war profiteering uh, um, and there's businesses for this. So this is also exposed. So I'm showing all the warts and the, and the horrors um, uh, that women um, and families have to endure um, in these uh, places where where violence has taken over and where wars have broken out,
0: and then the flow-on effects of that violence as well. I understand that part of the genesis for this play was when you were living in uh, in Finland.
2: I wasn't living. I was there on a on a on a book. T- uh, sorry, on a speaking tour. tour.
0: So visiting Finland.
2: And yeah, and uh, it, it it just we. You know, there was one day that was a free day and I wanted to go and explore the city and I was told by my hosts that it's probably not a good idea for me to be out in the street because it's it's the, uh, Finland's national day and they were expecting some uh, Nazi protests um, to break out. And so the Nazis took over. Um, There was nationalists in the streets. They were against uh, migration and against... um, They were calling uh, refugees who had uh, fled from Syria. This was was during the time that the Syrian um, refugee crisis broke out. They were calling them pedophiles and and monkeys and terrorists and jihadists. And they just didn't want them. Um, They didn't want them there. And so I... I woke up and I'm like, okay, so I'm stuck in a hotel room all day, It's it's, um, and I started to think about uh, the refugees that they're calling all these names, them, the others, and thinking really of um, things not being that different in Australia. Uh, I mean, we might not have um, uh, protests of that size here, although they have... You know grown in the last few years, um, but we certainly demonize the asylum seekers and the refugees, and we politicize them at every election and we uh, they are used in in the most appalling ways and then and then um, and then we forget about them uh, and then they 're forgotten uh, for long periods of time so i I sat down and I started to imagine what would compel people to risk everything and throw themselves into the unknown and become refugees.
0: The result is the play Them. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Triple R. Joining me in the studio to tell us about this year's Melbourne Winter Masterpieces, two complimentary exhibitions, Senior Curator of Asian Art, Wayne Crothers. Wayne, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much. So, uh, the terracotta warriors uh, have been, I guess, significant on the cultural landscape since about the 70s. I think that's when they... No, f-
3: discovered in 74, but they weren't toured until 82 was the first tour. And, and incidentally, or um, uh, they came to Melbourne for the very first time they left China, which uh, is quite astounding for me and probably for everyone else in Melbourne. But uh, they haven't been back since. And now they are back, but with a complimentary exhibition, uh, The Transient Landscape by Sae Zhuo Qing? Guo Chun. Se Guo Chun. Yeah, he, one of the most sort of, prominent international contemporary artists, uh, born in China, uh, practices in New York. Uh, nowadays, but still has a very strong connection to China. And then his, his practice is very informed by Chinese histories, Chinese inventions, the materials that he uses. Of course, he creates artworks from exploding gunpowder to create huge murals, but also uh, events and happenings internationally that some of them are momentary, some of them he singes or Im- imbues these explosions onto paper and silk to create huge murals. And also uses porcelain, which we're featuring in the exhibition with with very large, sort of immersive porcelain installations.
0: And so that then is a clear point of connection between the terracotta warriors as well sculptural elements, his drawing on Chinese history and more.
3: He's very informed by histories and he's fascinated with Chinese philosophy, literature. When we spoke to him two years ago about the project he was very excited and he visited many of the locations from where we have uh, borrowed the artworks for the exhibition there are ten warriors and then an additional 170 um, pieces of gold, jade bronze, um, really some amazing pieces beyond the Warriors. The first exhibition, incidentally, back 36 years ago, had 19 pieces. This has over 170, plus this uh, parallel exhibition where the Saigwa installations really uh, interweave their way and uh, create a dialogue which covers the ancient objects which are 1200 years of history and then his contemporary works which were created just two months ago in melbourne so it encompasses in all 3200 years of history now for people who may have seen images
0: of the terracotta warriors but don't know necessarily that much about them uh, what was the context in which they were created and then buried they were what
3: to accompany an emperor, to guard his body in this world and the afterlife? Yeah, understanding the period is quite important, that it was a very tumultuous period that led up to the first unification of China in 221 BC. Uh, there was uh, generations of, of, of uh, states that were fighting each other for supremacy. Uh, and then finally, Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor, or he the first emperor of China, unified all of those divided states into the China, the entity that we know it today. And due to that, um, you know, the great effort and the many wars that that, that led to that, of course, he was um, very conscious that he had to have an army to protect his afterlife and his obsession with immortality led to the creation of that army and a huge mausoleum site that surrounds his burial chamber. Uh, which is speculated to be 56 square kilometres. And the Warriors are one part of that mausoleum site. And one of the things that's fascinating about the
0: Warriors is that instead of a series of uniform sculptures, for example, there are, they are individualised.
3: They are. Their parts are made from molds, but then when they're still wet, they were manipulated to create the different sort of postures and and forms of the warriors. And then the faces, the head shape, the head shapes were made from molds, but molds. But then clay was added, almost like a makeup artist um, prepares an actor for the stage, with um, increasing the, the 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 emphasis on the brow, the nose, the chin, hairstyles, moustache, beards, etc. Were all added uh, with additional pieces of clay to create all of the with a, a unique type of uh, identity or personality.
0: And in terms of then... Uh, I'm struggling with the name, I'm sorry. Uh, Saigua-chan. Saigo chans work. Um, there is, uh, what, a, a flock of porcelain birds, 10,000 strong.
3: Yes, well, when we think of flocks, 10,000 tends to uh, you know be much larger than that. And the term for these... Uh, what's well, what's a flock of starlings... But uh, they move and they, they, they spin over your head in this huge formation that's uh, termed as a murmuration, a murmuration of birds spinning around um, above you, 10,000, uh, being historically in Chinese culture, being a number which represented an, an infinite number, a number that we couldn't be counted. Um, and also represented uh, a long life and immortality. So the birds really carry the spirit of the emperor from his tomb, fly over the warriors, um, spiral above you, and then create almost like a calligraphic uh, brush stroke in the air uh, in the shape of Mount Li, which is the auspicious mountain which uh, adjoins the Shi uh, Huan, the first emperor's tomb, and the terracotta warriors' site. Now, the first emperor was after a kind of immortality. He has got it
0: in a way, but it seems that we almost remember the warriors buried with him more, certainly in popular culture seems to know more about them and have immortalised them rather than the man they were set to guard. Well,
3: that's true. He desired immortality and, and the kingdom that he created really has been handed down over many dynasties to the China that we know it today. But the fascinating thing about the, the warriors is that they were nev- their creation was never recorded in history the site of his tomb Um, the existence of the first emperor was recorded by historians but the warriors were never recorded and became lost in time until uh, five uh, brothers who were farmers in the region were digging a well to irrigate their persimmon crop in or personal orchard in 1974 and they came across the first fragments and then a head which took them by surprise some of them apparently saw it as a, a as an omen and and ducked for cover and others went to the local authority uh, reported it and then the excavation to date has revealed 2,000 with a speculated additional 6,000 yet to be unearthed. It's in terms of the as
0: you say, the the fact that the very first international tour by the Warriors was to Melbourne, to to bring them back so many years later. Uh, Some people will perhaps be wondering, well, why bring them back? We've already seen them. But kind of to have that connection then with a contemporary artist, that kind of exploration of life and death, of history, of legacy, of culture, it it seems a very apt pairing and an appropriate exhibition.
3: Well, as well as presenting all the additional research and discoveries, there's been endless discoveries made at this muslim site over the 44 years since their discovery and since the 36 years they first came to melbourne so we're we're, we're presenting them to the public but also we're uh, the we're creating a contemplative very beautifully designed exhibition with spaces that uh, our visitors can sit and contemplate this huge sort of epic story of, of chinese history with a contemporary voice and a contemporary dialogue. So perhaps outside of all of the social noise that China appears in our daily sort of landscape of the media, people can um, really get a holistic and personal impression of what China is to this day and how it's been informed by its history and how contemporary artists are referencing that in their artwork. I've been chatting with Senior Curator
0: of Asian Art at the NGV, Wayne Crothers. Wayne, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure.
3: R R R
0: This has been a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
2: Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.